Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 55 of Unknown Orbits, The Country of the Kind by Damon Knight. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitzey. So this story features a protagonist who is a sociopathic mutant, highly intelligent, He's wandering the world, leaving violence and fear and destruction in his wake. He refers to himself as king of the world. He's been chemically altered to give off a noxious smell. One question, is he separated from society because he committed a crime or just because he's different? The story doesn't really give a reason for why he's the way he is. Okay. So... As I was saying, he's chemically altered to give off a noxious smell. So when he tries to interact with other people, they're repulsed by him. I believe his appearance is also kind of gruesome looking. What they did talk about in the story, in the backstory of the story, is how at an early age they discovered that he was highly violent and impulsive. And they tried to lock him away or they tried to restrain him in some way. And then for whatever reason, they just left him free. But before they let him be free, they altered him to give him the smell. So that way he would never be able to fit in among regular people. And this whole scarlet letter business is for people to identify him and completely ignore him like he's not there. Well, not so much ignore him, but kind of like avoid him. Yeah, but not interact. Right, right. That's the basis of the story is that this isolation that he experiences makes his underlying sociopathy worse. And he develops this enormous resentment against the human race that they won't accept him. And as he refers to himself as king of the world, he has this narcissistic idea that he's smarter than everyone else and he's a genius and he has this plan for the world that he wants everybody to sign on to he has a manifesto he spends a lot of his time constructing these carvings that he uses to attract people so that he can drop his manifesto on them thinking if i can give these people my manifesto they will follow me and they will worship me and that's really it for the plot is not a lot of plot in this story It's just this character study of this insanely sociopathic and violent character. And I really liked it. I really liked it. Because he does such a great job of portraying this character and helping you to understand and almost sympathize with his alienation. When I read this years ago, I didn't quite like the story. I think there were certain elements in it that didn't ring well with me. But now, many years later, I think I understand the story better and appreciate it more. You could very easily read into this story that this was Damon Knight getting some stuff off his shoulders, that he was frustrated in some way with the world, and this was him creating an alter ego that kind of expressed that frustration. 
The frustration of being ignored, certainly. Of being the smartest guy in the room all the time and everybody else is an idiot. Yeah, you said Damon Knight. Right, which I'm going to get to (laughs) in a minute here to explain who Damon Knight was. But it's an indelible, very sharply drawn character study of a particular type of person. And what he really does well in the story is to get you into their psychology to understand why they feel as frustrated and angry as they are. So you focus more on the character while I focus more on the horror of the situation. And there is a certain amount of horror to it because he's deliberately isolated from the rest of the human race by these scientists who basically experimented on him. So there's some degree of justification for his frustration and anger. This appeared in February 1956, magazine of fantasy and science fiction. So Mr. Damon Knight, let's talk about him for a minute. He was a member of the Futurians, which is one of the early science fiction fan groups based in New York. We talked about them at some length in episode 22. That's our episode where we reviewed Asimov's Nightfall, and we talked about how Asimov was a member of these groups. And if you remember, if you'd listened to that, you might remember that the Futurians were kind of a bunch of assholes. Yeah. That they were led by Donald Wolheim. Who was a troll, definitely. Definitely a troll. And what this group did, they were, a lot of them were communists. They were passionate communists. Popular at the time. They thought that science fiction should promote the principles of communism because it was like a scientific form of society that had scientific validity. And they were not shy in shouting down or attacking anybody who they thought was not properly utilizing science fiction for that purpose. They were disruptive enough so that they were banned from the first world science fiction convention. Yes, they were. They already had a reputation. So he fit right in with that group because the impression that I get of Damon Knight was that, like Wolheim, he was kind of an asshole, which expressed itself often through his critical writing. He was one of the early and one of the more important critics in science fiction. He wrote a lot of articles reviewing other people's work and writing articles of science fiction criticism. I'm going to give you a little sample of Mr. Damon Knight's salty criticism. So referring to A.E. Van Vogt, who at the time was a very popular science fiction writer, he said, he is not a giant as often maintained, he's only a pygmy who's learned to operate an overgrown typewriter. Which I thought was an unfair thing to say, and you thought it was hilarious. I think it's hilarious because it's certainly not true. A.E. Van Vogt was quite a good science fiction writer and was popular for a reason. But that's an example of how nasty he could be. He also invented the concept of the idiot plot, where a story that only functions because everyone in it is an idiot. I'm sure that was a theme that he repeated often in his criticisms was, oh, this is another idiot story written by an idiot featuring nothing but idiots. Can I do a mini defense? I know I like to make fun of him as much as you do, but a mini defense of him is he was a smart guy. He just had a terrible attitude. Yeah. And this gets back to the story, the king of the world. I think Damon Knight felt often that he was the smartest guy in the room and was kind of frustrated that he had to deal with people who were lesser talented and less smart than him. A very good thing to read if you can get it. I don't 
know if it's ever been reprinted, but his collection of his critical articles was called In Search of Wonder. Which, coincidentally, we're going to talk about oh, in a little bit here. Are we going to mention that there was a second one, More In Search of Wonder? I missed that one. I used to own both of them. They're Advent Press, and they're worth a read if you can get your hands on well, them. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes here. So let me just finish up some of my quotes from him. A bad book hurts science fiction more than 10 bad notices. So that is kind of his defense of him being kind of an asshole, that he's doing a service to science fiction by attacking a bad book. In today's terms, we would say he was trying to be a gatekeeper. Yes, he very much, very much was a gatekeeper. That's a great term for it. My favorite is something he said about Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan. All the great fantasies, I suppose, have been written by emotionally crippled men. Okay, so what was the point of saying that? Well, which, in the case of Robert E. Howard, was probably true. I know nothing of he, Robert E. Howard. He did commit suicide when his mother died, and he immediately went out and shot himself. So he had some issues. It was certainly the case with him. But are you going to say that was the case with J.R.R. Tolkien, that he was emotionally crippled? I don't think so. You know, he did serve in World War I, so he might have had some issues, but that seems a bit harsh. I think it's just his narrow condemnation of fantasy in general. Yeah, he probably was not a fan of fantasy, which was not uncommon back in the day in the Golden Age among some science fiction writers. And, you know, to be fair, this was a period when there wasn't as much fantasy produced as there is today. So there was limited amount of stuff to look at to say this is really good or this is really bad. A lot of people, especially in the science fiction community, did not like Lord of the Rings when it came out. They thought it was ridiculous. They thought it was silly, overblown, whatever. So it got slammed. I would love to look up specifically what Damon Knight said about it. That's something I may put on my to-do list. So as a writer, he never really wrote many novels, I believe. I think it was mostly fix-ups and extensions of short stories. So he was not really a novelist. He did write a book, Creating Short Fiction, which I have and I've read several times, which is very good. If you want to write short stories, I highly recommend Creating Short Fiction by Damon Knight. It's got some very interesting analyses of how to write a short story and the structure of short stories. So that's one I would recommend to any of our listeners. In addition to being a writer, in addition to being a critic, he was one of the founders of Science Fiction Writers of America. He also did some anthologizing, and I think he was probably pretty good as an anthologist. From my memory, I would say he was probably even the third best. Of anthologists? Yeah. Would you put Graf Conklin ahead of him? Absolutely. He, okay. he, Conklin would be one, and as a team, Bleeler and Dicty, the second. Okay. Don't know them, but I'll take your word for it. They did the best science fiction stories of the year. Oh, okay. And, and novels from like 49 through 57 or so. Yeah, that's an important anthology. Okay, so we're agreed that we both like this story? Yes, I liked it now more than I did when I originally read it. Well, maybe it's the advancement of age and the frustrations of life. Maybe you can empathize a little bit more with the character. Oh, absolutely. My perspective has changed over time. Yeah. If you're a grumpy old man, you'd probably like this story quite a bit. You darn idiots! 
I have no words to say except... (laughs) So you mentioned the book In Search of Wonder. Yeah. Which I read parts of it in preparation for this. It is a collection of his thoughts on certain writers and the genre and so forth. I will say that he said very nice things about John Collier, who's one of my favorite writers. So I was very pleased to say that. Could you remind me which... He was the one who wrote the famous story that was adapted for the Twilight Zone, I believe, the spot remover. Oh. Where the guy gets a love potion. Yeah. And he gets this girl that he's got a crush on. She falls in love with him. And he only pays like $10 for the bottle of the love potion. And then the girl is so clingy and so overwhelmingly focused on him that after a while it drives him nuts. So he goes back to the shop and he says, I know why you're here. And here's what you need. It's the glove cleaner. It leaves no trace. It's painless. And it's $5,000. And I think Serling changed the ending a little bit. Yeah. Because in the in the TV show, he's about to give it to her and finds out she's pregnant. Yeah. John Collier wrote very nasty little stories. Do you have another example, though? Because... That's the most well-known of his stories. There's another one called The Three Bears Cottage, I believe, where his husband and wife superficially seem like they're very much in love with each other. And they live in a cottage out in the country, and they are secretly plotting to poison each other with mushrooms. It's very clever. That sounds fun. And then there's another one, I can't remember the name of it, where a guy kills his wife and buries her in the basement. And then his neighbor comes over and figures out what's going on and torments him. It's kind of like the Poe story. Telltale Heart. Telltale Heart, but with a much more savage sense of humor to it. That's the kind of stories he wrote. If I could find one or two of his science fiction stories, we may do an episode on him. He was not predominantly a science fiction writer, but he was science fiction adjacent. It's become clear to me now that that's a hole in my reading. I thought you would say a couple of his stories and I would suddenly remember him, but... He was anthologized frequently. Like, the glove cleaner was often anthologized. There's one or two of his stories that theoretically you might have run across. I've got a copy of his collected works. I'll lend that to you. I think you might enjoy it. So in his book, Knight asks a couple of questions, which I think are worth you and I discussing. The first question he asks is, what is reputable fiction? Okay, immediately I'm going to say, what do you mean by reputable and why does anything have to be reputable or not? He says in his snarky tone, It's fiction that the critics and librarians like. Well, that's just shitting on librarians, isn't it? Well, they're the ones that buy the books and put them in the libraries and help keep those writers alive. Okay. It's non-genre. He makes that point that it's generally not genre fiction and goes on to discuss the place of genre fiction in literature. It's well worth reading. I think he's basically saying only mainstream fiction is proper fiction. Well, is reputable. So reputable would infer that it's got society approval, you know, that this is good fiction, this is important fiction. And by implication... Oh yeah, you can't have any fun reading fiction. It has to improve you. By implication, it dismisses genre fiction as non-worthy of approval. I'm going to give you a little personal anecdote here, which describes this phenomena. After I got my bachelor's degree, I went back to my alma mater, and I had an interest in getting a master's of fine arts. 
And I talked to one of the professors in the English department at my alma mater and said, hey, and by this time I'd published one or two of my beatnik spy books. So I was a published author. I was already well into being able to write novels, thought I was at a decent level of writing. And I said, hey, I want to get an MFA so that potentially I could teach at some point in the future, have that as an option. But I'm a genre writer. I have no interest in writing literary fiction. What I want to do is I want to expand my knowledge of literature and become a better writer. And she said, that's admirable. And I support you in that. And I think that's great. But I'm telling you right now, if you come into this department in the MFA program and some of the people in this department learn that you're a genre writer, they're going to hate you and they're going to make your life difficult. I was shocked by that, you know, because this is an English department that had courses on science fiction and crime and military books. So they had all these undergraduate courses that are devoted to genre fiction. And yet to get an MFA from that department, you couldn't be a genre writer. It was so weird and psychotic. I can see this. First of all, the classes are designed by someone who wants to get money for the university. Right. So you're saying it's good enough to support the department and get undergraduates to take our courses, but it's not good enough for us to teach as uh, masters. For those people. As part of their jobs, I think they end up having to elevate themselves, the importance of themselves. Because if they're too ordinary, they're too disposable. So they all have to be great thinkers of mainstream fiction. Right, right. So that ended my chance that I was ever going to get an MFA, unfortunately. I still wish I could have, because I would like to teach. I really would. But I think that illustrates the gap between respectable, reputable fiction and disreputable genre fiction. I think to the people in the department... Mainstream writing is an art, and genre fiction is too easy, and that's why they hate it. Yeah, because they think that it's something that is done to a formula that is unimaginative, that is treading the same ground over and over again, and it targets the tawdry elements of human nature, like lust and bloodlust and you know all these other lower forms of emotion. Whereas literature elevates the mind and elevates the spirit, even though it might be a frickin' story about some horrible person that does horrible things to people. And I'm thinking of Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, which is widely considered one of the great masterpieces of the English language, which I frigging hated when I read it. Because <laughs> it's literally unrelieved awfulness. It's awful people doing awful things to other people. And then the story ends where some of the awful people die and are killed by another awful person. The end. And it's just unrelieved sadism and violence. And there's no point to it. There's absolutely no point to it. And yet that is considered to be one of the great works of literature. And there's not one single person in that book that's a decent person that isn't immediately murdered by the other characters in the book. To me, anybody tries to pull that crap with me, well, what I write, literature, elevates the human spirit. Oh, yeah, well, then explain to me why you guys love Blood Meridian so much. How does that elevate anything? And, you know, there's been a longstanding bias among the literati that anything popular can't be great. Yeah, and that's true of movies. It's true of 
music, you name it. You know, it's an old, old story. So that was one tack that he took. And another question that he brought out, which I think is a really interesting question. And if we can answer this question without going back to our discussion of defining what science fiction is, I think that would be good. So he asked, what is special about science fiction? And then I'm going to give you his quote. Our undiminished wonder at the mystery which surrounds us is what makes us human. In science fiction, we can approach that mystery not in small everyday symbols, but in the big ones of space and time. I think that's really well put. I think we need to define what is science fiction to answer this question. We can't do that because we already tried to do that in a previous episode twice. We've tried doing it twice in previous episodes, and I don't want to return to that ever again. Remember what he said, what's special about science fiction? What makes it different and unique and better at some things than any other type of fiction? Okay, I'll take a crack at this. Ignoring the fact that I feel science fiction and the purpose of science fiction has evolved over the decades. Just what is special, I would say it is a venue for being able to examine concepts that cannot be examined in any other genre. Or not easily discussed in other forms of fiction. Right. Including mainstream literary fiction. You know, we've talked about hiding social issues in science fiction. Mm -hmm. But I think it's not just hiding, it's distancing them a bit so that you can look at it a little more objectively. Right. So I like the fact that he points to the scope of science fiction. And if you think about it, the scope of science fiction is enormous. There's literally no limit to the scope of a story that you could tell in science fiction. Compare that to a mystery story, which is limited and terrestrial. Compare that to the Western, which is geographically limited. Oh, it's got to be one of the most limited genres there ever have been. Compare it to romance, you know, where at the end you have to have the romance be successful. Not to say that in all of those genres you can't write great works of literature, that you can't write really great books that are compelling and even tangle with really important ideas. For instance, there's been a lot of great Westerns written over the last few decades that are just fantastic in grappling with, you know, the issues of the founding of the United States and the concept of individualism and all these other big ideas. But all of those genres are limited to some degree in scope, but science fiction is literally unlimited in scope. Yeah. I mean, you can tackle the biggest issues in profound ways. So I think of episode 43, where we talked about Childhood's End with Arthur C. Clarke. That is a book with an enormous scope. It's about the destruction and the end of human civilization. Yeah. And it happens in an epic fashion. And along the way, he visits a lot of very interesting ideas. For instance, the aliens that arrive to begin the process, don't reveal themselves initially. But when they do, they reveal themselves to look like devils, like the devil, which has an enormous impact on the human race, that this all-powerful group of beings look like the devil. I think Clark had the characters in that book eventually discussing the possibility that our images of devils and Satan may have come from previous visits of the aliens. 
which, by the way, was exactly what they did in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. (laughs) Great movie. So that's my answer to his question, is I agree with him that the scope of science fiction is unique, I think. And even though I don't personally think that I've got anywhere near approaching that scope, I hope to, at some point in the future, to challenge myself by writing something with a lot of scope to it, something that's more epic and touches on primal elements of humanity and, you know, what we are and who we are. That sounds a little pompous, but, you know, I do want to challenge myself. And all of the science fiction I've been reading over the last year has just kind of created that yearning in me to do that. Well, some writers like to challenge themselves, and I have great respect for that. And some writers reach a certain level and write that way forever. And I can appreciate that as well. I am of the first type, as are you. Yep. So I had this idea that this story is basically Reddit. Reddit? Yes. I don't mean it in a jokey way. It's about a world that is passive-aggressively ignoring a guy like a shadow ban on Reddit. If you're not familiar with that, a shadow ban is where they turn off your comments, but you still see them. You think they're being posted, just no one else sees them. It's extremely passive-aggressive. And the story goes on to his reaction to it. He gets as violent as he can, just trying to get them to react to him. Right. And I think that exact same thing happens on Reddit. That's why you get extremism on a platform like Reddit. Yes, and on other platforms where you have people who are angry, they have a point to make. You may disagree with their point, but if you start just shutting them off, they'll just get angrier and angrier. You know, that's endemic to social media because the angry posts, the infuriating posts, the the posts that manipulate people's emotions, those are the ones that get shared, you know, whereas the ones that appeal to reason tend not to. Yeah. So, hooray for social media. All right, that's it for episode 55. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Wrightson. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. guys from Milwaukee.